Great to see you all. Please uh, open your Bibles or look in your bulletin at our text for this morning. I want to read our passage and kind of give you an idea of what we're going to do today over the next 40, 45 minutes. The text I want to read from is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For God, or for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let's pray. Fathers, we address this passage and a broader topic this morning. I just pray for great grace for everyone gathered here today to hear and for me to speak. Lord, I pray that there would be just the right kind of um, tone and emotion and um, and uh, passion that would be in, in step with both the scriptures and with your own heart. Uh, so God, I ask you to come now by your spirit and rest upon this place and do what only you can do and do even unexpected things today, even things that I have not thought of or even dreamed of. But God, I thank you that your word says you are able to do that beyond all that we ask or even imagine. So would you do it today, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want to um, take the opportunity to talk about something. And I want to, I just want to give some, um, some comments up front before we jump into this passage and the topic full bore. Uh, today, um, January 22nd, 1984, President Ronald Reagan uh, declared the third Sunday of January to be the Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, it was in commemoration or in remembrance of the court ruling on January 22, 1973, Roe versus Wade, when abortion was legalized in our country. So ever since then, many Christians, not every Christian, not every church, but many churches have marked this day as a day of protest of that infamous ruling. Since 1973, January 22nd, many babies have been aborted. And no doubt some people here are pretty closely connected with someone who has had an abortion. Perhaps you have or perhaps you're a man who has encouraged a woman to have an abortion in the past. And everything we just sung about, about all of our sins being taken away through Jesus Christ, still stands. It's not like all sin except for some really bad sins. Paul said of himself that he was the chief of sinners. He was the worst of all sinners. And yet God showed him mercy. God showed him mercy to be an example for the rest of us of the incredible patience of God. So I just want to say that up front. I don't want to come across as, I certainly don't want to come across or be abrasive or be rude. And yet, on the other hand, I just want to talk straight today as well, okay? This is an issue that should be for Christians 
the social justice issue of the day, period. Back when slavery was legalized, it was a political issue. And some Christians didn't want to touch it because it was a political issue. Now we know better, don't we? We know better. No one here would dare look back and say, oh, that was a good thing or the the abolitionists shouldn't have done anything. They should have just kept their mouths shut. They shouldn't have done anything. Almost 58 million babies have been aborted since January 22nd, 1973. 58 million. That's 18% of today's population in America. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, tells us that God's judgment comes down on a people, not because they are unaware of the truth, but because they know it and they suppress it. They know the truth. God has revealed himself, right? God has revealed his truth to people. Now, I'm not saying every single truth about God. I'm not even saying special revelation or salvation in Christ necessarily, but general revelation about God that he is our maker, our creator. It says here in verse 20 that he's made it evident by us in the things that are made. And so we are without excuse. Our nation is without excuse. Anyone who is apathetic or even in favor of choice or abortion, whatever you want to say, is without excuse. And we suppress the truth. The truth is suppressed. Uh, Greg Bonson was a, a, an apologist who has since passed away. He gave this great imagery of what it means to suppress the truth. He says, like uh, someone at the beach with one of those big beach balls or even one of the little ones, and he's trying with all of his might to get that under the water, you know, trying to push it down. That's what it means to suppress. He's trying to push it down with all of his might, but every once in a while the ball just flips up or flies up in the air. You've, that's happened to you before if you've been at the pool or at the beach with an inflatable ball. We suppress the truth. We know the truth, and we want to push it down. We want to suppress it. What is the truth that is suppressed? Specifically, what truth about abortion or about life is suppressed? We know it, and yet we push it down. Now, when I say we, I'm thinking more generally our culture, but maybe even some here. And I'm just being, I just want to be totally transparent. For a lot of my Christian life, I have been relatively apathetic about this issue. Not because I've ever been okay with abortion, but because it just seemed like such a big issue. I bought into the notion, well, it's politics or all that stuff, or we can't really, we can't really make changes or see things happen or see changes happen. And... And even more recently, just discouraged. It just seems like this giant that is immovable. But it's not true. As God's people, as followers of Christ, we want to hold up the truth, right? Paul says in Ephesians 
Don't take part with others in the deeds of darkness, but rather expose the darkness. So specifically, what truth about abortion or what truth about life do we know and is being suppressed? There's three things I want to address this morning. First, the unborn child is a person. It's a person. It's got personality. It's not impersonal life. It's a person. Second, the unborn child is made in the image of God. And third, abortion is mainly about God. So let's just take those one at a time. First, an unborn child is a person. The debate used to center around the question, this question, when does life begin, right? Does life begin at conception? Does it begin somewhere, you know, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 20 weeks? When does life begin? Christians have always said life begins at conception. It begins at the very earliest moment at conception. Science has proved that life begins very early, very, very, very early. And so that debate is over. So the debate has changed. Advocates for abortion now want to say, when does personhood begin? I want to especially speak to maybe some of the high schoolers here. This is something you're probably going to hear a lot of in school. Certainly in college. And, and in just conversations, all of us will. When does personhood begin? Is it just impersonal life? Okay, so it's life at the beginning, right? But is it a person? Well, so for some of us, we're like, well, what else would it be? Has there ever been an example where an elephant came out? Or a mouse? Or a monkey of a woman? No. But this is where the debate is. So now we see this dehumanization of the unborn. We see it all over the place. We hear it in, our, in the language that's used in the media and in our broader culture. And we just have to know this is the same thing that people did to justify slavery of blacks. They were less than fully human. This is the same thing that Nazis did to justify the slaughter of millions of Jewish people. So the baby in the womb is called a fetus. It's called a clump of cells. Or body parts from a baby are called fetal tissue used for research. Do you hear the change in the language? To try to draw us, try to suppress the truth. That Wait a second, wait a second. This is actually a human being here. What does the Bible say? Some, you know, honestly, some Christians aren't really sure the Bible addresses the issue of personhood in the womb or that addresses the issue of when this thing in the, in the womb of a woman is an actual person. But it does. The Bible assigns personhood to that life in the womb at the very beginning. Listen to Psalm 139. This is a classic verse on this. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14 and 15. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows them very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. David is saying, that was me. You were weaving me together in my mother's womb. It wasn't just some impersonal life. That was me. David later on saying, that was me that you were putting together. Job chapter 31. Job says almost the same thing. Job is talking about himself and one of his servants. And he says, did not he who made me in the womb make this other man? He made Job in the womb and did not one fashion us both in the womb. Personhood starts at the very beginning. David and Job are saying later in life, they're saying that was me in there in my mother's womb that you were forming and fashioning and putting together and knitting together. And David just worships and praises and says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Furthermore, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it speaks of Mary very early on in her pregnancy. And it says she was found to be, uses these words, with child. Not just pregnant, but with a child. The word child there uses, can be used of a child in the womb like it was there. And it's used elsewhere of a child outside of the womb that's growing, a toddler. She was with child. Science, or, science testifies to what we already know as well. The Bi- we want to go to the Bible first, but science also testifies to what we already know. Did you know that at eight weeks gestation, all the organs are present in that baby in the womb? The brain functions, the heart pumps, the liver makes blood cells. Each, the finger, each finger gives a unique fingerprint at eight Weeks. Almost every abortion is after eight weeks. The high percentage of them are. Images show a baby sucking their thumb at eight weeks. Some of the Planned Parenthood videos or undercover videos that came out this last year showed uh, clinic workers talking about um, harvesting eyes and hearts and livers and brain tissue and stuff like that and it quite just begs the question clumps of cell or not not the question the statement clumps of cells don't have those things people do human beings do one thing i was thinking about for this morning like lord why am i doing this one thing i i hope to do is to arouse us to the genocide that is happening year after year in our own nation, legally, under the cover of law. Certain laws, interestingly enough, certain laws 
also testify to the truth that we know that's trying to be suppressed. Did you know that 38 states have something called fetal homicide laws? Shows the level of our schizophrenia in our country. I mean, it's just insane. Fetal homicide laws, it means if a woman is pregnant and she's driving and a drunk driver hits her and she survives but the baby dies in her, inside of her, the driver of the other car can be charged with homicide for the death of that baby. The irony is she could be on, the, on her way to an abortion clinic to choose to have that baby killed and be hit by a drunk driver and he could be charged with homicide and yet she can go do that legally. Iowa has that law and 37 other, other states do as well. The truth is being suppressed. What truth? The truth that the unborn child is a person, is a human being, worthy of dignity and honor and life. Here's another thing that is being suppressed. The unborn child in the womb is made in the image of God. Now, everyone knows this. I mean, we know this, but you, you see it everywhere. Push this down. Human beings are unique, aren't they? We are not like other creatures. We're, we're, we're unique among all of them. Would anyone dispute that? Humans are more important than dogs and trees and cats, and turtles, and stars, and rocks. Anyone dispute that? All right. I don't think so here, probably. We know this, and the Bible tells us why. Human beings are uniquely created in the image of God. Human beings uniquely have the stamp of God on them, which is why we look at them differently. And we should have animal cruelty laws. I mean, we, we should. We really should. It's wrong when people are cruel to animals. I get that. But we know that human beings are different. They're unique. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, God, this is God speaking. This, so he's, he's, he's created for five days. He's made... You know, the, the, the light, separated the light from darkness and the land and sea and sea creatures and birds. And, and, and then he gets to day six and God, the triune God is speaking. And he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Didn't say about anything else in creation. Verse 27 says, therefore God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The unborn person is a person made in the image of God and worthy of dignity as an image bearer. Whether they are black or white, Hispanic or Asian, whether they are disabled or fully abled. 
I find it heartbreaking that an estimated 92% of women who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome for the baby and her choose to abort that baby. One of the growing trends in our culture, even here in America, it's not probably as popular as in Europe or certainly places like China, but one growing trend is something called gender-based abortions. And talk about a war on women. It's usually a girl. They find out it's a girl. It's aborted, especially in places like China and India. But even in America, even in Western Europe, Here's the truth that's being suppressed that we just want to shine light on and speak the truth. When a baby is aborted, a human being stamped with the image of God is snuffed out. Here's the third truth that's being suppressed. Because of the other two, that it's a person, it's a person made in the image of God, therefore, Abortion is mainly about God. It's not mainly about politics. I, I understand there's lots of politics around it, and, and even legitimately so. But it's not mainly about politics, and it's certainly not mainly about a choice. Between, it's, not, it's certainly not a, about a woman choosing to do something with her doctor. Abortion is an assault on many fronts, of course, on the baby that's being aborted. Horrific assault. It is also an assault on women. Women that have them oftentimes have lots of trauma, physical, emotional, psychological, for a long time afterwards or maybe for the rest of their lives. It is an assault on our culture. It is an assault on our collective conscience and it's not just outside of the church on you and I as well. But abortion is supremely an assault on God. It is an assault on God. Back to Psalm 139, verse 13. Let me just read that verse again. It says, for you... God, David speaking to the Lord, he says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What David marvels at is not the biological or natural processes that are taking place in a woman. It's amazing the way that a woman's body just takes care, like this baby grows in her. But what is marveled at is that it is the hand of God forming and fashioning, intricately weaving this child together in the mother's womb. Abortion is mainly, it's about other things too, but it is supremely a God thing. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And don't let any other thinking creep into your mind. 
too, many Christians, good-hearted Christians, are pers- they, this is how they would put it, personally against abortion, but they're pro-choice because they think it's a cho- they think it's a decision between a woman and her doctor. It's not true. It's a God issue. It is a God issue. It's an assault on God himself. So I'm sure many of you are wondering, okay, what do we do? You're not saying anything new to me, you might be thinking. What do we do then? Let's start here. Let's just, let's just say to ourselves and to each other this morning, inaction is unthinkable. We, we can't not do something. We can't not do something. Let's just decide today that we must do something. I do have some additional things to say about it, but let's start there. I do have six things I'd like to leave you with, though, that we can do. First, submitted to God, I want to challenge each one here to be a visible and audible Christian on this issue. Some don't speak, and I oftentimes have fallen into this category. Don't speak because it's such a charged issue. People get worked up about it. We don't want to offend. Who wants to offend others? I mean, some people do, but most of us don't, right? But we cannot be silent about this. If 1.2 million children will die in their mother's womb in 2016, how can we sit comfortable in our nice, lazy boys and not worry about it? We've got to be involved. Let's be visible and audible. It really does matter. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this powerful quote. I think he said it in his book, uh, Living to, or Life Together. He said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless, he says. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. In the Bible, we're commanded to love and care for the poor and needy. Proverbs 31, 8, 9 says this, open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of the destitute, open your mouth. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Is there any other needier group? Any more mute group of people than the unborn? We need to speak. Now, of course, Christians can be incredibly obnoxious and harsh and rude and do harm in this, I get it, right? Which is why I said we need to do these things submitted to God and his wisdom. But we can't sit idly by and be silent and be absent from this issue. Number two, we need to fast and pray earnestly for the church to be awakened and for our culture to be awakened regarding this issue. 
Some polls show, have shown that one-third of professing Christians are pro-choice. We pray that more and more would. I know some people just think, you're talking politics now. You're trying to tell me who to vote for. No, I'm not. I think we need to pray that more and more Christians' minds would be challenged and convicted about the things I said before. This is a person made in the image of God. God fashioning them, forming them in the womb. One third of Christians say, you know what? Just a side note. Did you know some radicals in our culture right now, some and pretty well-known, very smart intellectual types, if I named one of them, some of you probably know who it is or at least have heard the name. They're, they're, they're wondering out loud and trying to start a discussion if maybe personhood doesn't even begin until like toddler age. Crazy. Crazy, but a growing number of people are starting to think this way. So we need to fast and pray that there would be an awakening in the church and in the culture regarding this issue. Stats show that 20% of women in America having abortions are also self-professed Christians. In other words, they're they're connected either loosely or in some way to a Bible-believing, gospel-believing church. At least that's the way the stats put it. I know that, I know there's ambiguity in how things are defined. So we need to fast and pray. We need to pray earnestly that God would change and awaken in his church a passionate earnestness on this issue. Anyone ever heard of a guy named William Wilberforce? He was, um, there's a movie that came out maybe five or six or eight years ago called Amazing Grace, and it was about, uh, largely about him anyways. He was, um, he, he, looking back, largely credited with the abolition of slavery in Great Britain long before it was actually abolished here in America. And he worked tirelessly, and he had friends and cohorts with him, but he led the charge. He worked tirelessly for decades before he saw it happen. We should pray, and if God leads us to fast for an awakening in the church and the culture regarding this. Number three, we should support alternatives to abortion with time, energy, money, and prayers. Giving money, giving time, giving energy, and maybe doing something you wouldn't have ever dreamed of. That's what we need to consider and give ourselves to. There are crisis pregnancy centers that are sprouting up in different places that offer assistance and offer assistance with women that are pregnant, um, helping to place a child if, they, if they'll work with them. They'll do free ultrasounds. Amazingly, almost 90% of women seeking an abortion change their mind if they have an ultrasound and see the baby inside their womb. But they're nonprofit organizations and they need support. Um, a couple months ago, some of us from the church went to a banquet for informed choices. 
good friend of Alyssa and mine, Jen, Jennifer Rausch, is the head nurse there. They do this kind of work, and they have—I mean, they—they they have substantial evidence that they know they're saving lives. That's amazing. I would urge you to get behind a ministry like that. Whether it's Informed Choice, I know there's one in Des Moines called Agape. They do great work. Others as well. You might be aware of others. But we, should, we need to get behind these places, these organizations that are doing these things. But here's, you know, these are questions Alyssa and I have been asking each other lately on this. Because otherwise it's kind of theory. It's kind of, we're, we are pro-life in our doctrine, you might say. But when it comes to the practice of it, we're pretty hands-off. We're kind of absent. I want to challenge you. This is kind of a hypothetical, but I want you to think about these things. Would you, this is really where the rubber meets the road, would you take a young, single, pregnant woman into your home for six months or nine months or a year if it meant saving the life of the child? Would you do that? I hope more and more of us would be willing to do that. Would you be willing to adopt an unwanted child? Put that in quotes, unwanted child. Would you be willing to? I know there's many, many families that are waiting to adopt, so I don't think there's a, there's a, a vacuum there. But would you be willing to if it meant saving the life of that child? I think Planned Parenthood's slogan is something like, every child a wanted child, which, which then justifies them because there are certain child, children that they think are unwanted that really aren't unwanted. They're just unwanted by the mother that is pregnant with him or her. Number four, I want to urge you to use your privileges. In our country, it's different than it would be in in other places where there's no democratic process and no voting for leaders. I want to urge you to use your privileges of free speech and voting and even peaceful protest to push for legal protection for the unborn. In the past months, this, but, but last year in 2015, there were a number of demonstrations and peaceful protests outside of Planned Parenthood uh, facilities. I think something like that is a good, peaceful protest is a good thing to do. Locking arms with other believers and praying with them and calling for change your privilege of free speech, your privilege of voting. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I'm going to tell you when you vote, vote with the Bible and with your Christian convictions in mind. Don't separate. Don't be someone who compartmentalizes life. And we do God here on Sunday. And I'm all about God on Sunday. Or if I got my Bible open or a Bible study. But then all these other things are just disconnected from God. No, we want to we wanna vote like Christians. We want to live like Christians all the way around. 
Don't set aside your Christian convictions for the sake of a particular candidate or a particular party. Number five, give the gospel. Give the gospel. Do do you know someone, anyone? Don't nod, don't raise your hand, okay? Do you know someone who has been involved in in abortion? Maybe a... Um, maybe a woman that you, sp- you know that she has had one or a man who has urged his girlfriend or his wife to have one or a grandparent whose daughters had one or d- do you know someone there? No doubt there is ache and pain and sorrow and guilt. Give them Jesus Give them Christ, right? Jason said it. We sung it earlier. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. What does someone need who's weighed down with guilt? Guilt of a past decision that they made, that they regret, What do they need more than to know how that guilt and that shame can be lifted off through the power of the cross? Give them the gospel. Give them Christ. There's forgiveness. There's cleansing. There's healing. There's reconciliation for women and men, nurses and doctors, executives and advocates involved in abortion. And number six, this is kind of a strange one, but it just, it popped my mind last night. Love your kids. Well, let me just say it this way. Love kids. If you have them and they're young, love especially yours, but love kids. Love children. Our culture values kids less and less not only in the light of the abortion issue, but let's be honest, right? In our culture, kids are valued less and less. Now, to be sure, to have a child is, or many children, to have one, two, three, five, seven children is hard work. But if we adopt the values of the culture, we will view our children as an annoyance, as a burden, as a hindrance, as a ball and chain that is holding us back from fulfilling our lives and dreams. And that's wrong. That is wrong. What does the Bible say? Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Kids are a gift from God. No amen there. Your kids are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a reward from God. If you have children, whether biological or adopted, they are a gift from God to you. And we ought to treat them that way and look at them that way. Of course, there are those moments when things are really hard. 
but they are a gift from God. In a culture of death, maybe the most revolutionary thing we can do is celebrate life. Loudly, with trumpets and tambourines, okay? Celebrate life. Celebrate the life of your children. Celebrate the life of new babies that are born. We got lots of them here, it seems like, lots of the time. Celebrate new adoptions, okay? Lucy was adopted nearly a month ago. Celebrate it, okay? Mark and Lindsay, Lord willing, will be adopting their precious twins soon. Celebrate loudly. Don't hold back. Celebrate the births that have come recently with um, Gwendolyn Strand and Selah Horvath and the twins with, for the Carlsons, Landon and, oh my goodness, Natalie. Is that right? Okay, Natalie, okay. And the new babies coming, Brian and Ashley Luce and Jason and Aaron Anderson and no doubt many more in the future. We need to celebrate life. We need to love our children. Okay, we don't want anyone else raising our kids, but I'm okay with you loving my kids. Okay, you're not their parent and don't try to be, but I want you to love them in the best possible way. And I love your kids as well. We need to love our children. Let's shine light on the darkness. Let's expose the darkness. Let's speak the truth in love. Let's get involved where God would call us. If we've never been involved, let's just take this as an opportunity. God is nudging us to do something. We can't not do something. I believe it was, um, actually, I think it was Wilberforce said something like, um, he says, you may turn your face away, but you can never again say you didn't know. We know. We know what's going on. And if we turn our face away, if we turn our face away because, you know what, I just don't want to be burdened with that, shame on us as God's people. It's wrong. I know we're going to get involved in different ways, some more than others. We should pray for a William Wilberforce to be raised up, (laughs) to carry the torch of this issue and see it through and fight and fight and fight on a state level, national level to see things change. But every single one of us can get involved in some way or multiple ways, and we should. Let's pray. Father, you have shown yourself to us, God. You have revealed yourself to us. We are without excuse. Your invisible power, your divine nature is clearly seen in what has been made. And just even put what's been made. Children have been made. They're made by your hand. We see your handiwork when we see a little baby. I think we can even say when we see a mother who gets big, larger and larger and larger as that baby's growing inside of her, we see your hand at work. We see it. 
We're without excuse, Lord. I pray that we would be those who see the suppression of truth for what it is and seek in love and in the power of your spirit to expose the darkness, speak the truth in love, be used in probably the small ways, the different ways we're going to be used by you to get involved in some way by giving of ourselves, our finances, our time, our energy. And God, who knows what you might be pleased to do as more and more Christians are awakened to this issue and just say, I can't not do something for the sake of Christ, the sake of his name. Thank you for our time today, Lord. God, I know this is a different, this is a strange thing, maybe, to talk about on Sundays. It somewhat feels strange to me, and maybe some listening feel like it's a strange thing. God, I pray that you just would graciously seal your word this morning by your spirit and use it in our lives for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. You're dismissed.